When talking about Bible translation, what often gets avoided or buried is all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that isn't ideal. Many people like to imagine that their Bible translation came to them through perfect, peaceful processes via perfect, holy men of God without struggles or weaknesses. But that's just not the case. And we need to be transparent and honest about these things. Christianity isn't about putting on enough makeup to hide our blemishes. Nor is it about rewriting history to make ourselves look better. We are all broken people through whom God is glorifying himself by saving us and slowly making us more like Jesus. It's messy and it's not helpful to be in denial about that. Today, we're going to look at some of the difficult, strange, or even sad things that go on in the background of some of the translations we love. devoted follower of Christ when I was 17 uh, through reading the scriptures itself. You know, most people have a story regarding a youth pastor or a family member or something. That's Jordan Monson, writer and Bible translation worker. Uh, and though I had those kinds of influences in my life, it was actually going to scripture itself. I remember thinking, you know, if I were to die someday soon, I'd want to read what this book has to say. And I knew enough, at least, about the Bible to start in the New Testament. I at least knew that that there was some sort of division, you know, and that Jesus comes in in the new. Um, and so I started reading and the words just cut a channel through my heart. And I decided I needed to memorize what I was reading or at least some of it. Um, and so I underlined a bunch of stuff and started memorizing it. And so anyway, that's kind of a mini testimony in a, in, in a nutshell. Is that I was kind of a goner when I started memorizing scripture. But yeah, I went to college originally to teach music and very quickly was disabused of uh, my desire to do that for a living and for a life. Uh, so I switched to a Spanish and Portuguese major, knowing already that I wanted to go into missions. And I thought at the time, somewhat naively, I thought, well, you know, Spanish and Portuguese plus English uh, will, will open up most of the Western Hemisphere, at least as a trade language. Uh, and then I spent all my missions life in you know, Europe and Africa. <laughs> so, um, but either way, I still use Spanish and Portuguese a lot. I was always interested in Bible translation in the background. Uh, I took some Greek, Koine Greek and classical Greek courses just to kind of you know, have something to do with that, even though it wasn't a part of my major or anything. Uh, and then I did church planting work in Spain. And uh, while I was there, I wrote an article for Relevant Magazine that sadly uh, is gone now. They, they since did a site restructure and it got lost in the ether somewhere. And so, yeah, I wrote this article about missions and, it, you know, the one of the social media people at the seed company saw it. And then they found out I knew Portuguese, which they were really looking for people, you know, future consultants to go into Lusophone Africa. So I got into the Bible translation world. They said go to grad school. Um, so anyway, that's a bit of how I come to have studied this. Um, you know, I love for modern languages and then, um, you know, I love as well for biblical Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. And then now I'm a, a church planting pastor in St. Paul, Minnesota, doing my PhD in intercultural studies or, you know, missiology at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And still, you know, fascinated by Bible translation and hoping to keep a foot in through volunteer work. I'm married. I have two kids and one on the way. Uh, my wife's name is Aubrey. Jordan recently wrote an article for Christianity Today entitled, When a Word is Worth a Thousand Complaints and When It Isn't, 
Bible translation is about more than just technical accuracy. It's a fascinating article that I recommend that everyone check out for themselves, and I'll link to it in the description. Now, I was curious to know what led him to write the article in the first place. This is what he said. I was sitting, sitting in a coffee shop once, and I overheard this conversation. You know, if, you, if you do a lot of work in public places, you get very used to these loud uh, conversations that you try to drown out with headphones or whatever. And I, I remember reaching for my headphones to, you know, this conversation was kind of loud behind me. Uh, and, you know, 99 out of 100 times, I just throw the headphones on because, you know, I don't mean to eavesdrop. And normally it's not interesting enough anyway to do so. And there's always work to be done. Uh, but I heard what these women were talking about, uh, and it, it sparked my ear. And so I did listen for a minute before I put the headphones on. And one woman was just exasperated and telling these stories of financial and, and medical ruin in her life. And it was like both her body and her finances were sort of uh, breaking at the same time. And I just remember this picture of her not only slumping in the chair, but even leaning against the wall that was right next to her as if the chair itself was not enough to carry her burdens. She said, sometimes I wonder if God and Satan made a bet on me. And I just, you know, I almost gasped in the coffee shop because I knew exactly what she was talking about. She was talking about the famous first chapters of Job. Let me read part of this so that we're all on the same page before we go further. Here's what the ESV says. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Where, where the interest really caught is that I started looking into commentaries and I saw a few from maybe some of the most respected Bible scholars out of mainline Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, uh, the secular world. And all of them were saying, or most of them were saying at first, you know, this is not the devil. And they, they went into, they went on to explain what was going on. And I thought, well, you know, what's going on? Surely there must be some debate over this. You know, maybe more liberal scholars will say one thing, conservative scholars will say another. And I start opening up the most conservative evangelical commentaries, and it says the same thing. These, you know, conservative evangelical scholars with a great pedigree are all saying, this is not the devil of the New Testament. But it just, it blew me away to realize that this character was a common wisdom character in the ancient Near East, that the Hebrews and all of their neighbors had you know kings that had courts with different sages and most of them were sort of your positive sages who told the king what to do and then there was always the adversarial sage the one who was poking holes in his plans you know playing out his ideas and drawing out the potential future consequences and then looking at whatever 
came in the future to encourage the king to change his plans now or to change his verdict about, say, what righteousness is or to be able to call Job righteous or not when he's only seen blessing and not adversity. And so the idea that none of the original hearers of this story or readers of this story would have had even the slightest notion of this character being the devil of the New Testament, you know, the character that tempts Jesus in the wilderness, uh, it blew me away. And I realized, you know, nobody knows this. This little truth seems to be pretty locked up within academia. And I wanted a wider audience to see it. So Jordan writes in his article, The word for this and other accusers in the Old Testament is Hasatan, the Satan. It's not a name, but an office, just like the prophet and the warrior are not names of specific people, but biblical roles. So Hasatan was a role that many different characters played depending on the circumstance. Sometimes evil characters played the adversary. Sometimes righteous characters took up the role. In Numbers 22, an angel of the Lord played the Satan against Balaam for the glory of God. In Job, then, that character is not the devil, but a quote-unquote devil's advocate. He has no particular vendetta against Job. He's not there because God might be prone to error but so God can answer why the righteous praise him and do good, end quote. Jordan's absolutely right in that the word Satan in Hebrew simply means adversary or accuser, and it's not treated as a proper name in this context. In Job, it always occurs with the definite article before it, the Satan, which almost no English versions reflect. Hasatan, with the definite article ha, Satan is used 27 times in the Old Testament, and 25 or 26 of them are with the definite article, right? The the. And just like, you know, different languages are different in this, but in English, we wouldn't put a definite article before a name. I wouldn't say the Andrew did an interview with me. So anyway, it's just important to know that the character that meets with the other, you know, sons of God or, or this divine counsel in Job 1 is an office, not a name. As Jordan continued digging, things got even more interesting as he pulled back the veil behind the scenes of English study Bibles. I looked to just some of the actual English Bible translations and English study Bibles, and I noted the difference in that a lot of the study Bibles call this Satan, the capital S, you know, the devil of the New Testament, same devil that's talked about in Revelation 12. Uh, and then link back to the serpent in Genesis 3, uh, which of course is another whole mess in that the original hearers would not have understood the serpent to be the devil either. It was only later that we sort of looked back and saw that more clearly. When I looked in these study Bibles and the actual just biblical text in like the NLT, ESV, NIV, some of these things, what I noticed that was really fascinating was that some of the commentators who said this is not the devil were actually the drafters of, say, the NLT's Job translation or, you know, the ESV study notes. And so a good example is Dr. August Conkle, you know, one of the dynamite quotes in the piece. This is the quote. Treating Hasatan as the devil gives the perception of a dualism in which God and the devil make equal claims on a person's life and that sometimes the devil wins. What's important in Job is the concept of a holy and sovereign God in control of all events of our lives, end quote. 
When Conkle said this, Jordan began to think, what in the world is happening in the Bible publishing world when he wrote back to me? Because I said, hey, I noticed in your commentary, you said this is not the devil. But in the NLT, you know, it still says Satan with a capital S and you you drafted both. Uh, and then even more strange when you, you know, you wrote the Job study notes in the ESV study Bible. And there it clearly, it doesn't specifically say it's the devil of the New Testament, but in its cross-referencing with verses in the New Testament, it makes clear that it's, um, it's the same characters in Revelation 12, which is the devil. And I expected some sort of theological nuance, some sort of clever response that I didn't quite understand, not being a Job scholar. But instead, I got this kind of dynamite response back where he said, yeah, they completely wrote my notes. It's linguistically indefensible. I considered having my name removed, but I chose not to. You know, stuff like that, which is not what you expect when you're dealing with the most respected Bible publishers in the land, right? And the way that they did that legally is that, as I understand it, and this is just sort of the hearsay of me trying to remember what he said in his email, but basically he was contracted to provide a product, which are the notes, but then that product, those notes were purchased from him. So the ownership was then in the hands of the publisher, which I don't want to necessarily name by name because I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but the, the publisher bought the rights, you know, bought it as a product or, or something. And then once they own that, they could do what they want with it. And, you know, and they have some boilerplate language. You know, I, I reached out to Grudem a few times and he didn't respond. But then finally, the senior editor at CT reached out like, hey, we've got some some stuff that a major scholar has said about you and we're going to run with it. Do you have anything to say? Like, do you want to weigh in? Uh, and so he, you know, they have their typical like sort of corporate speak about like how it's not that bad what they did because the authors knew that technically this was a, a potential outcome when they started the project or something like that. Here's a short blurb out of what Wayne Grudem said that Jordan shares in the article. The ESV study Bible notes are, quote, the result of modifications and additions suggested by at least seven different editors. It is the general policy of Crossway Books not to engage in a public discussion of specific editorial decisions. But yeah, I mean, it's from Conkle's wording, and it seems like he was not the only one. You know, his, his notes were rewritten uh, to be what he said linguistically indefensible, and frankly, to represent the absolute opposite of the opinion he had written in his commentary. So I asked Jordan what he thinks are the factors that make translation publishers do these kinds of things. Yeah, so I think there's one reading of this. You know, you got a lot of ex-evangelicals who jumped all over my article because they're like, see, you know, Grudem's evil and like oh, evangelicals are evil and they're just they just care about market forces and not having boycotts. And it's like, OK, well, settle down, guys. Like, I know you love that narrative and you'll find it wherever you can. Um, so I was a little bit sad to be read like that by people looking for that, you could say. But there is, there is no doubt that market forces play a role. You know, I talk about the RSV controversy from the 1950s about how, you know, one or two words can essentially ruin an otherwise great work of scholarship. You know, the ESV, they don't like to admit it, but that is not an original Bible translation. They bought the RSV's copyright and then they updated only about 5% of it. Most of that for, you know, times have changed and words change and they got some of the archaic language out of there. And then they also took some more evangelical translation choices. Uh, but the RSV is a fantastic work. But anyway, uh, one or two words like Isaiah 714 and virgin or young woman, you know, was it a, a virgin or a young woman who, who would have this child? Uh, and they went with young woman. 
So Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the RSV, instead of translating that as, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, translated that as, Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son. And again, I don't have the RSV in, in front of me, so basically I might have gotten some words off. But the, the, the important part is virgin or young woman, and how, how should we translate that? Um, and so uh, I'll mention this market force thing again so it doesn't get lost before we move on, on to this issue. But the English Bible community learned a really valuable lesson in the 1950s and still to this day that one translation choice can have you know incredible market implications for your translation. And if it weren't for that one word, there were others, but this was really the touchstone that got everyone so angry and militant and burning Bibles and flags and stuff. If it weren't for this one word, we might never have had the NIV. It's, it's because of people thinking that the RSV had, you know, communist ties and all this other stuff because of this one word that it was trying to take away the divinity of Jesus that we ended up having some of the modern evangelical Bible translation wars that we have today. Yeah, so anyway, market matters. And a lot of Bible translation committees will even have people who are not necessarily Bible scholars. They're more trained in... You know, English or or you know, publishing or, or or marketing that will sit at the translation table as well to make sure that what they say I don't want to sound crass, but that it sells well or that it doesn't offend too much or or whatever. We will actually be talking about the Isaiah seven fourteen controversy at length in a future podcast with one of the world's top experts on the subject, Dr. Christoph Rico, because there's a lot more to say about it. Believe me. Now, Jordan writes in his article that the RSV was labeled a communist Bible and the Un-American Activities Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives investigated members of the Translation Committee for Communist Ties. The U.S. Air Force even warned against using the RSV in a 1960 training manual due to its supposed communist commitments, end quote. And if you want to read more about that whole crazy story, you can check out a book by Peter Thusen called In Discordance with the Scriptures, American Protestant Battles Over Translating the Bible, which I'll link in the description. So what we've seen so far is that Bible translation can be messy behind the scenes. This is the sort of stuff that has led people like Douglas Moo to say, There are two things nobody wants to know. One, how sausages are made, and two, how Bibles are translated. If they eat meat, people like to eat a hot dog right at a baseball game or sausage or whatever. But to know how they're made, or at least how they used to be made before it was made so infamous, is of course disgusting, right? And it, and it kind of, it's off-putting, and you don't really want to let, you, you don't want to see behind the curtain. You just want to enjoy the food. Yeah, I think that's too crass. That's a funny statement, and, and the Bible is not, it's not nearly like that, but we talk a lot about uh, the infallibility or inerrancy or both, you know, of scripture. And then we just kind of leave it there. And all of a sudden people have their English Bibles in their hands. And I think a lot of people, it's convenient to sort of gloss over that middle ground. So evangelicals, of course, will believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture. And of course, then that's drawn back to original manuscripts, which we don't have. But there's this then there's this entirely human process and that's transmission you know uh, copying recording and then translating and all of that 
allows room for human error. Now, we really, we can trust the Bible incredibly so, even in, you know, in translation, but there are a few dozen of these examples. Most of them are not nearly as doctrinally important, but there are times like this where something like this happens, where maybe we've been getting it wrong for a long time. Uh, None of those things I don't think concern classic, you know, core orthodoxy, but there are still significant things like theodicy, you know, why does God allow evil in the world. A lot of people look to Job 1 to try to answer that question, and they do so in vain if they're using the historic traditional understanding of Job rather than the original understanding. But my wife said, like, it would just be nice to think that, you know, my NIV or whatever, my NLT is coming down from the heavens, and it's just, it's in my hand as a, as a finished product. Um, and that's why, that's why people don't, that's why the sausage thing is funny and why it's true. People don't want to see behind the curtain of Bible translation. They don't want to know that there's disagreement and that sometimes Bible scholars leave uh, a translation committee because they can't, they can't handle it anymore. Or that there might be a little editorial heavy handedness coming from the top down. But yeah, you have these forces like market forces, like we've talked about, uh, and tradition is a huge one. I mean, if everyone since Jerome's Vulgate in at least the West has been interpreting something remarkably similarly, and you are going to be the first to break, well, that's a very monumental thing. And and I think translators feel the weight of that. There's this famous G.K. Chesterton quote where he says that tradition is the democracy of the dead. And modern scholars really don't want to fall prey to chronological snobbery, right? And thinking that, you know, newer understandings must be better. But, you know, we also realize like, well, the dead, sometimes the dead were wrong. And so their votes would have been different if they had access to what we have access to. And here's where I run the risk of chronological snobbery. But until the last 200 years, we didn't really have anything from Israel's neighbors, except for Egypt. We didn't have anything from the Hittites or the Phoenicians or the Babylonians. We couldn't read their languages, you know, until the Rosetta Stone and other similar findings like that. We didn't know their languages, their culture. So like the idea about this ancient king's court being a genre cue, being a setup, you know, like if I tell you, three priests walk into a bar, you know exactly what I'm doing, right? Like, it, you're not trying to figure out, like, well, you know, was it actually three priests or not? Is this meant to be a true story or not? You're like, well, you don't care. You're waiting for the joke, right? Because I'm genre cueing you that I'm going to tell a joke. And in the same way, to have God in his court with sages surrounding him is a genre cue. And it was used not only by Israel, but all of their neighbors. And so all of this, like, talk about whether Job was historical or not, or if Job was trying to teach us about the devil or not, all of that becomes a lot easier to digest when we realize that the beginning of Job is a genre cue telling us, hey, this is wisdom literature, and you're going to get this wisdom set up that will launch us. It's like putting the T you know, down in the, in the golf course, right? You put the T down and then you drive the story forward. It's notable that the, the uh, Hasatan character does not come back after halfway through chapter two. If Job, if the story of, if, if the book of Job meant to say anything about the devil, then surely, as any good story would, they would parade him back out as the loser at the end. You know, they would mock him, humiliate him, show that he's wrong, whatever. But he just, he just disappears because he's a genre cue, right? In the same way you leave your tea behind because you're, you're worried about the golf ball. Like, where you want to go forward and you don't care about the tea, right? Like, that's just meant to start the story. So, if you're like me... You might be wondering, what's the positive takeaway from all this? I think we have a good quote from Mark Strauss in the article saying something like this, that still, you know, the Bible is by far and away the most 
represented historical document, right, in terms of the number of copies and the, the age. Um, and so we can really believe in what we have. Like, there is no tampering. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, like, oh, well, didn't the Vatican, like, change what's in the Bible just to suit their political whims? And it's just like, man, without, like, a, I mean, Amazon might be able to pull that off today with a book they published on the Kindle, but we, like, no one could have pulled that off back then, right? If someone translates or someone copies scripture, and then you have that one copy get copied and get copied and get copied. And soon enough, a thousand years later, you have um, copies of that that land in China and some that land in Britain. Like, there's no way any power could could go to all those little towns and all those little monasteries where those copies were and somehow change all of them you know, to be one monolithic passage. And so we, we have a lot of trust in what what the Bible says. And that said, w- you know, what I brought up here really does not happen very much. I mean, depending on the translation you read, the Bible has somewhere around 800,000 words or a million words in it. And there might only be a couple of dozen of these examples. And most of them are not nearly as theologically consequential as this. So I would just say, you know, don't be disheartened. You know, just like when you first learn about sausages, right? It is a little, uh, it it can be a little off-putting. But, um, you know, the... The, the doctrines that we have surrounding scripture and infallibility are not threatened by this. It's more our interpretation and how there's always work to do, right? We can't just put our seal on it and say, this is good always. There's, we always have to apply new scholarship to what we're doing. Mark Strauss said that we have sort of a, a hermeneutical illiteracy in the church and that if the, if the church were more hermeneutically sophisticated this is what he said if it were if the church were more hermeneutically sophisticated then the job of bible translators would be a lot easier uh, and i agree with him i think it would be great for the church to have a better understanding of translation issues and more just hermeneutics in general just to be good readers and they don't need to know the languages for that they don't need to study linguistics for that but just to be good and careful readers in english even if they're monolingual you know that's fine just to be good careful readers and that skill can be learned across a variety of disciplines, whether someone, you know, do, does a lot of history or a lot of uh, literature, you can learn to become a careful reader. And that goes a long way in good Bible teaching. I would take I would take a lot of English majors who are good readers teaching scripture over a lot of people who go through a seminary program and they learn just enough Greek and Hebrew to do damage, but they've never learned to read carefully, nor do they read much. At the end of the day, we shouldn't be too surprised when sinners actually end up sinning. That's important. Bible translators have their blind spots, their biases, their own personal temptations. And if Paul called himself the chief of sinners, we shouldn't be shocked when there are some unpleasant or unfortunate things we find behind the curtain when it comes to Bible translation. This is why I would argue that a firm, unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God is essential, because only then can we be confident that he will preserve his word and all the beautiful truths in it that form the foundation of our joy, our hope, and our life. He does this in spite of all the imperfect people involved in the transmission and translation of his word. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. My name is Andrew Case. This is a podcast where we believe the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. 
This podcast exists ultimately to help us all become more like the man of Psalm 1, meditating on God's Word day and night, going deeper into it and treasuring it. <laughs>